Hello, and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so pleased to have Jason Gaddis here today as my guest for this episode. Jason is an author, podcaster, speaker, and a global leader on interpersonal conflict and connection. He founded the Relationship School, an impact-based company dedicated to helping individuals, couples, and teams work out their differences in order to have indestructible relationships. Jason is the author of a fantastic book called Getting to Zero, How to Work Through Conflict in Your High-Stakes Relationships. I have a ton of respect for Jason's pragmatic guidance, but more than that, I love his big heart, his clear passion for helping us love and be loved, and his willingness to share his struggles and triumphs. Jason and I talk through so many important topics in this conversation, including a tricky listener question from someone who feels that her partner's continued reluctance to discuss issues from the past could jeopardize their relationship. I hope that you enjoy hearing Jason and me work on this relational knot and dive into some of the most crucial relationship topics together. Hi, Jason. Thank you for being here today. Yeah. Hi, Alexandra. Great being here and great uh, seeing you. We first met when you asked me to be an ambassador for your relationship school, which is your baby. It's your contribution, one of your contributions to the world. And I was a big yes on that project. And it's been so fun to be near you as you have grown the relationship school and all the things that you have done. And I have loved just kind of being near you. But what I didn't know when you and I first met is how much I would like you. I just like you so much. Our perspectives are aligned and we can go on and on about all things love and sex and relationships. But I also love that you are somebody that I can turn to around the challenges of being a public facing relationship educator. So I feel like you Mm. are one of my go-tos when I need to talk through an insecurity or a challenge or a victory or a milestone, like you are just one of my like very dear compatriots in this work of like public facing relationship education. Uh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's mutual. Yeah, I feel like you've supported me so many times through the years. So really mm-hmm. grateful to hang with you and be here. Yeah, I think the thing that impresses me most about you is your deep integrity, like just the way that you are deeply to the marrow of your bones committed to walking your talk. That just comes through in everything that you do. Nice. And likewise to you. Mm-hmm. Well, on Reimagining Love, I really like to start with my guest experts with this relational self-awareness question. So are you ready for me to hit you with it? Yeah, bring it. What is a growing edge that you are currently working on in one of your important relationships? And what has it been teaching you lately? 
there's two really the ongoing conversation around sexuality is a deep and confronting and beautiful edge for me. Um, I can go into more of my history there. And then the other one is my wife and I's just ongoing repair process. That's the, to me, such an essential element of good conflict is like, how do we get back to a good place? And, you know, we're always just updating and refining and we get stuck sometimes. And, and then there's, you know, life's different. The kids are older and we're different and we're older. And so it's like, what used to work maybe doesn't work as well. And so we're and really for the last year, we've been in this kind of nuanced conversation around how exactly can I help that nervous system over there? And she's sort of asking the same question. Before we were getting started, I just opened your book, Getting to Zero. I opened it to a random page and just read a few pages. And it was about that very question about our responsibility to our partner's nervous system. And I want to for sure circle back to that because I think that is really, that's a question that I get asked a ton. It's like, where is a line between Mm -hmm. soothing ourselves and soothing each other? And I think that's a really rich question. But I want to go back and hear about the first piece about sexuality in a, your unfolding, what you described as kind of your unfolding sexuality. I would love to hear more about that. You were said you would share a bit more about your story. and Yeah, cool. Yeah. And I obviously I'm going to leave out details because my wife's not here and I, I'm not going to talk about our sort of yep. private, intimate moments currently. But I will talk about just some of my history that continues to be, a, I don't know, just a beautiful learning process and sometimes painful. I was that guy that, you know, I learned to masturbate at an early age and in shame and in hiding. My cousin taught me to masturbate actually when I was like 10 and then turned the lights on and made fun of me. So I had this classic pleasure and pain coupled together in the same moment. And that became the sort of blueprint for my sex life, really, Uh, especially as a young adolescent and into my 20s. And when I lost my virginity, I woke up the next morning and the woman was gone. And, uh, I just had a lot of challenges Yeah. and then I would lose my erection or I couldn't get hard or, mm-hmm. um, I'd ejaculate early or something like that. All of which contributed to me not being that guy that just wanted to get laid or have sex yeah. with a partner, but I, a guy who would try to get a woman to do everything but that and avoid that, um, at all costs. So I spent most of my twenties in a lot of shame and and then I, when I had a longer term relationship over past a few months, I, it would sort of get better. It would kind of improve. And, but then the issues would resurface with a new partner and so on. And then uh, early on in my dating relationship with Ellen, the same challenges came up and uh, I eventually would reach out to a sex coach and did some yeah. kind of Tantra coach type people yeah. and just to try to figure this out, you know, and then I started talking about it openly on my blog and I actually one of my blog my most popular blog post is a letter to my cock. Oh, <laughs> so, I love that one. It has been so long since I read it, but you know we're going to share that in the show notes because I remember reading <laughs> it and I want to read it again now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. You know, I've had to learn about my body and my nervous system as a yeah. sexual being and how sensitive I am. I think the moral of the story here is I'm a sensitive, very sensitive man and my body is very sensitive. And it turns out I also need some things before I'm able to have sex or during that contribute to my well-being. And I, it's hard to undo some of the patterns in the nervous system around 
going fast, like, cause, cause a, a young boy, man jerking off, it's sort of like, I've got to hurry and get it over with rather than I want to stay and enjoy this. Mm-hmm. So there's a, my nervous system kind of was hardwired to hurry up and get it over with versus, wow, this is amazing. Let's hang out here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Once again, I'm just like moved to tears by you, like just who you are, because this is spending decades with men as a couples therapist, teaching male students for decades. Like it's sadly so rare to be able to hear a man talk in the way that you just did about his relationship to his sexuality, his relationship to his penis, his relationship to solo sex and partnered sex. Like these are the conversations that I feel like we'd shame men out of even being able to imagine language. And like the content of what you just shared is really important and fascinating and rich. But just the process of you basically just briefly narrating the story of your sexuality is something that every man and every person, but especially every man deserves to kind of understand, like be able to narrate that for themselves, you know, like that we know that like, narrative coherence, being able to tell your story, like that process of here's where I started and here's what I went through and here was the turning point and here's where I am now and here's the direction I'm Mm -hmm. heading in. Like that ability to narrate a domain of life and here you're narrating the story of your sexuality, that right there is healing. Like what you just did shows the work you've done and that whatever you had to do to get to the point to be able to tell your story is healing work. And I want, I just want that for every man, because we, we certainly like male sexual scripts around get hard, stay hard, take leadership, always be ready, always be interested, always figure out where the window of opportunity is. That story is so thin and so inaccurate for, I imagine the vast majority of men. Yeah, completely. And and then boys and men are trained, you know, online now with porn and Mm -hmm. it's becoming, I don't know how big of a problem it is, but if I had to guess, I'd say it's a big problem. It's sort of a disembodied sexuality. Um, and it's so, I mean, sex is the most fulfilling when we're in our bodies, right? In our hearts and not dissociated and not trying to perform an act or something. And yeah, that was one of my issues as well is the performance piece. Because um, a lot of men think that that's, oh, I've got to please her and I've got to, it's you know something I've got to do versus it's a way I've got to be. It's a really hard one for a lot of guys to get. It's a complete unlearning. Yeah, it's an unlearning. It's building your sexuality on a completely different foundation. Yeah. I think in part, our ability to even do this embodied psychological work, we're kind of just in the early stages of that, right? Like I am weaving somatic work into my foundations, like my Mm -hmm. psychological foundation. But this wasn't work that I certainly got trained in in graduate school. And I imagine that you didn't either. Like this, like valuing the body working from the body up was not something that I was trained to do. I'm learning this, you know, I'm retrofitting my, my way of working. Yeah. I'm with you. Me too. I mean, I, I didn't have a class on relationships. I didn't have a class in graduate school on the nervous system or the brain, um, which is fascinating to me because I'm like, mm-hmm. man, we're social mammals. This is like, mm-hmm. so essential now. And I, I think part of that is this kind of burgeoning uh, field of neuroscience and interpersonal neurobiology and all this amazing mm-hmm. stuff going on in the field it's almost like we're still in the social engagement system and polyvagal theory. It's almost like we're still just scratching the surface and it's exciting actually to see how much is possible in here and what we're learning about attachment even. And, you know, Ellen and I nerd out on this stuff all the time. So yeah, it's cool. We have more 
info and more info doesn't necessarily mean we're getting better at it, but. (laughs) That's right. Everything that you're sharing right now about your relationship to your body and your nervous system and how that pertains to your sexuality. I think that's especially for men. We're just at the beginning stages of doing that work. And you were saying before about, about how this is the impact of inadequate sex education, at least here in the U.S. We as a country and we as families aren't going to provide our kids with really holistic and wholehearted sex ed. Our kids are going to pick up their phones and learn about sex that way. And they exactly. will not be directed to thoughtfully curated websites. They'll be directed to Pornhub. And that's how our kids will and do learn about sex. And in terms of the scope of the problem, I'll just say that, you know, I just finished teaching 108 undergrads this year for Marriage 101. And I had... um. No, amazing. I love that you do that. Yeah, I know you do. I, and I know that that's your nerdy sweet spot too, is like, oh my gosh, getting to teach this stuff to, especially to young people. And I made a doc, like I made a Google doc and people, my students could put any question they had about sex in there to help me kind of refine the sexuality lecture that I was getting ready to give them. And I probably had five to 10 questions either about erectile difficulties, impact of porn, what do I do about my partner's erectile difficulty? Mm-hmm. I mean, so it was in a classroom of 108 to have five or 10 questions. That's a significant number of students who are worried about wow. impact of porn on sexuality and actual, like actual physical impact, including just erectile challenges. So it's completely the consequence of not providing wholehearted sex ed. It's just like returning away, you know, from such a vital part of our being and our essence together as social mammals. It's sad. And um, thank you for teaching that class. I just love that those kids get, get you and get that time with you. (laughs) I love it too. Okay. So I just, I came into this interview with your book, Getting to Zero, sitting right next to me because I just like to have this book near me at all times. Jason, it is so damn good. (laughs) It's just such a good book. Congratulations again. Yeah. Thank you. Early in the book, you write that the crux of a good, strong, long-lasting relationship is not the absence of conflict, but the ability and willingness to work through it. So can you start by just talking us through that idea that it's not about the absence of conflict, it's about the ability and willingness to work through it? Why? Yeah, a lot of us purchase a fantasy about how relationships go, as you know, and you meet the right person or you find the one and happily ever after we all just, it all works out and there's not a lot of pain. And I don't think that's reality. I think in my experience, most people struggle a couple years in, um, the struggle begins. And I just call it the challenging stage of a relationship where the differences and the different values and the different ways of being and the different nervous systems and the different attachment styles and all that start to emerge. And people really are very under-equipped to deal And then they think that, oh, it must be me or it must be the other person. When in reality, no, you've probably found the right person, the right person for growth. And it's just a matter of learning how. And what we now know through some of Dan Siegel's work is it's working through the, what I call the conflict repair cycle that actually builds secure relationships over time. Security is built through adversity and challenge and the repair of the adversity and the challenge and like getting back to a good place which is essentially what my whole book is about. That's how we build secure, strong relationships, not by avoiding stuff. There's so much wisdom in just that piece of it, like just normalizing that when there is 
disconnect, misunderstanding, disappointment. That does not mean you have chosen the wrong person or that you are broken beyond repair. Like that attitudinal difference, right? That perspective difference matters because once we start scaring ourselves that, oh my gosh, the fact that we're having this misunderstanding means that I'm doomed, you're doomed, we're doomed, then we, yeah, we're that much less equipped to deal with it. Yeah, totally. And it's really... I mean, so much of us grew up in families where we got a certain download about conflict that we either, it doesn't happen, we put it in the other room, we put it in a box, we compartmentalize it, or it's just loud and screaming and yelling. You know, we got whatever we got. And you're going to probably either go play that out again in an adult relationship, or you're going to try to do the opposite, but you're going to wing it. Most people wing it. Mm -hmm. They already know how to communicate. They already know how to listen. Why would they even think that they have something to learn here? And then that attitude creates a dynamic where I get to blame myself or blame someone else for the relationship not working. I mean, it's, that's just where a lot of people are at, unfortunately, versus if we take the attitude that we're talking about here, which is there's an opportunity for growth, there's an opportunity for healing. And it does take two willing people. That's the other thing is, you know, your mm-hmm. listener might be willing and their partner might not be willing, which is always sad that someone is like, no, I won't learn how to get back to a good place. (laughs) It's just like, what? (laughs) Why would you not want to learn that? Because then you can get this person off your back and have a better relationship. That's the question that I get all the time. So tell us, what does it mean? What does getting to zero mean? Getting to zero essentially just means getting back to a good place where we feel good again, where two people are like, ah, our nervous systems can let down. We feel safe. The social engagement system is online. We're not a threat to each other anymore. And we could possibly make love. We could go on a walk and we could do things that we like to do together. And I can sleep at night. So zero is just, I think, where we all want to live. And if you don't like the term zero, I always invite people, just make up your own term. It's like a baseline. Baseline should be good. And unfortunately, a lot of people's baseline is like a three or a four because they grew up in a family where it was a three or a four and you were living in constant tension and stress and people get used to stress because it's the invisible killer, right? It's like, uh, I can just live with my sympathetically aroused nervous system being kind of jacked up all the time and be okay. And I can function, I can get by and I can kind of medicate. I can have my two glasses of wine a night and I feel fine. So then I don't have to be in contact with how painful it is to not be as true zero. So I always, you know, have that caveat here that sometimes people's zero is not what I would define as a zero, where I feel really safe and relaxed to be me. Uh, but I think most of us want that. And so the, the whole book is about how do we get there? Mm-hmm. To me, the goal should just be, let's get back to a good place as soon as possible. That should be every couple's goal with conflict is, and how do we do that? Well, we don't know how. Okay, let's learn. Let's learn how to be better listeners. Let's learn how to speak in a way the other person can understand, et cetera. And most people use the default apology to get to zero, thinking that that is going to cut it. Because it kind of worked as a kid. Kids are taught on the playground just to say, I'm sorry. And they sort of, the teacher just moves on when the teacher says, hey, you two just apologize. And the kids both say, I'm sorry. And then we're back to play. And it's like, well, not really, because the nervous system actually didn't change. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't really let down. But that's the socially conditioned response to conflict is to just say, I'm sorry. I think I'm sorry goes a long way if it's done at the very end and if it's truly sincere and it's slow. Mm-hmm. But often people is leading with an apology and he's doing it really fast and it's almost habitual. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like saying, I love you to my partner every day. It sort of becomes rote after a while. Mm-hmm. 
love you, love you, love you. And it's like, wait, let's slow down and look in each other's eyes. So I encourage people that are chronic apologizers to do a few things first before the apology, like take responsibility for what you did, empathize with the impact on what your behavior had on the other person, and then validate their feelings and say, it makes sense you feel sad or hurt because I did X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to throw in, and I'm really, truly sorry, and look them in the eye, then okay, fine, do that. The goal should be, again, get back to a good place, like nervous system letdown, not, hey, I said, I'm sorry, we should be beyond this. Yes. The I'm sorry as the bypass is so common and so problematic. And like you said, I think it often does. If somebody is listening and noticing that they do that apology, that very quick, I'm sorry, as a bypass, very often of shame, I think, right? That if we, if we slow down and really witnessed our partner's emotions, the impact of our thoughtlessness, we would move into shame. And I think you're right that, that the origin story oftentimes is around either the perfunctory apology or the apology that comes like in a family where it feels like the apology is, is the punishment, right? Where like the early pairing yeah. is you have to say sorry and it's done in a really like top down hierarchical controlling way from a parent. <laughs> yeah, well said. Yeah, shame's interesting. I mean, we do have a very immediate response, some of us, to cover up shame, right? And apology is one way we cover up. Defensiveness is, of course, another way Mm -hmm. to cover up the shame. Mm -hmm. Just because I made a mistake here with my partner doesn't mean I'm a bad person. Yeah. Or there's something wrong with me. It just means I made a mistake with my partner. And again, this is why this context of the conflict repair cycle is so essential, because if that becomes the template and the normal way of operating in the culture of our relationship, then we're allowed to make mistakes. We're allowed to occasionally raise our voice and hurt our partner's feelings. We're allowed to not return the text on time because it's like, I made a mistake. And then I can like have compassion toward myself. Like, ah, oh, this is so hard. And I can like go, oh man, uh, let me try again, honey. And I don't have to collapse into my shame pile. Yep. Um, yeah, and I could say more on shame, but that's, that's a start. Mm-hmm. I want people to imagine, well, I want people really to, to buy your book so that they have this visual, but you have this visual at the beginning of the book that really sets the whole thing up, which is basically um, an X and a Y axis. So imagine that y'all, and then kind of circles, concentric circles going out. And so you're showing us that zero is obviously like zero comma zero, like the sort of center where those lines intersect. And then we can exit zero in any of the directions kind of around this wheel right? So you give us kind of the, the four disconnectors, the four places that we are at risk of going when we exit zero. So can you, and we just talked about shame, that kind of collapsy shame. Can you talk to us a bit about the rest of them? Yeah. So let me start just to develop this with my frame on just us as social mammals is that we have, I call it a scared animal living inside of us yep. that under, through neuroception, perception, whatever, we have a threat response And we go into what people traditionally call a fight, flight, freeze, faint response. And I like that. And I thought it was just what I notice about people is just more of their behavior. And so I call it the four disconnectors. We disconnect from zero. We move away from the center, like Alexander's talking about here, like away from the bullseye, which is where we want to be. And we move out and we typically go in one or two of four directions. We posture, which is like going up, kind of getting big and loud and intense, aggressive or anxious. Uh, We collapse, which is like shrinking, collapsing into our shame, going into our shell, getting really quiet. Or we seek, which is like 
feeling anxious and just like, we want to talk, not necessarily in an aggressive way, but in more of a needy sort of helpless way to get the connection back or we avoid and we just leave the room. We dissociate, we check out, we get on our phone and we don't want to deal with the person or ourselves. And we don't want to put any effort into getting back to a good place. And the primary two styles really are just seek and avoid uh, mm -hmm. because those are more of an attachment sort of blueprint that got laid down at a very young age. And under stress, if you'll notice, if the listener can notice, you're probably doing one of two things. You're either pursuing connection to try to get the connection back, or you're kind of avoiding the connection because it's hard and it's uncomfortable. And of course, there's a myriad of options here. I just like that. That helps me teach. And it makes sense to me in terms of the nervous system and what we tend to do. And then it's all about, well, how do we turn around essentially and go back to that bullseye back to zero? And that was, that's kind of the rest of the book. You know, the way that you language it in the book and the way you're languaging it right now, it takes the sting out of it, right? It's not about quality of character. It's, this is a wheel, right? It's not like there are better and worse. You know, you're not making hierarchies right. around this. You do talk about no. kind of the amplitude, like how far from zero you've gone. But you're not saying there are these are good, bad, right, wrong. You're inviting us to get really aware of our own idiosyncratic responses to yeah. perception of threat. We all have them. We all have them. What you do in this book is you give us a chance to get deeply curious about our own tendencies and then also deeply curious about our partner's tendencies because absent that ability to get curious, it's really easy just to judge our partner, right? They're, oh, there they go again. They're just shutting down as if that's somehow worse yeah. than your posturing or whatever it is that you do. Yeah. As you know, awareness is everything, right? If I'm self-aware, which is why I love your term relationally self-aware, if I'm aware of me, I'm more likely to be aware of you and aware of us. And gosh, we're probably going to get back to a better place sooner with that awareness. Uh, a lot of people just want to maybe want to, or just don't know that there's another way here. Just want to stay stuck. So, you know, when a couple has had a conflict and they're beginning to kind of come out. So you talk about connection, disconnection, reconnection. Let's say there's been some listening, some empathic reflection, but like in the early kind of post-conflict, maybe I feel good enough to go for a walk with you, but the space is still a bit tentative. It's a bit hesitant. You know, mm -hmm. we're still feeling a bit fresh yeah. or a bit raw. What do you want people to keep in mind when they're kind of coming up out of conflict? They feel like they've done a decent job and they're stepping back into connection again. What do you want people to hold on to or remember about that like early repair? Yeah, that's great. And just to remember what Alexander is talking about here is what I call the conflict repair cycle that will go on for the rest of your life, in my opinion, off and on. A couple will move through that. A family will move through that forever, most likely. So that's why we put so much attention on the reconnection part. How do we reconnect? How do we repair? And so if we're coming out of that and we're feeling kind of good, we're not quite at zero, maybe it's a two or a one. A lot of us can, that's good enough. Like we're psyched, especially if we're, we haven't been there before. So celebrate. Acknowledge yourself and acknowledge your partner for like, oh my God, it ain't perfect, but we got to a better place, which is huge for us. So I would acknowledge yourselves for that. Also, if there's still more, I'm sure you notice this, especially with couples, as the, a couple begins to get serious about this, they realize there's that hurt from 10 years ago. There's that hurt that never got fixed a year ago or 15 years ago. Like it's amazing the pile, right? And so new conflicts 
can stir up old ones and then they can compound. So sometimes when we come out of a repair about a fight yesterday, we're feeling residual. Well, is the residual about yesterday and we're not quite back to a good place yet from that? Or is the residual because I have a resentment that goes way back in time about a similar issue? And now I'm dealing with that. It's like, oh man. And then it's like, I don't want to bring that up because I don't want to make it worse. So I think a couple has to decide, do we want to take everything down to the ground here Yeah. and just chip away one at a time with some help perhaps from the outside? Or is this good enough and we're going to do our best to keep compartmentalizing the past? Again, I don't, I'm not judging people for not digging up the past, but I just do want to point out it's in your body and it's in your memory and it, you know, the procedural memory, it's going to come out probably again to be dealt with. So you could just take the long view. Like, yeah, we're just, we're in this and um, (laughs) we want to face each one as it arises. It does invite a little bit of like, okay, I feel so safe with you. Now, could we maybe look together at that thing that happened a while ago that we weren't able to look at before? Like now can you witness that? So it's like paradoxical, right? Like why, when we're feeling good, do I want to bring something up? But I think it's because we can, we sense there's a bit more capacity in the space between us to tolerate a little bit, like one more layer down. And I think safety begets a little bit more, whatever, like sensitivity to noticing that there is still this like little pebble in my shoe. And now that we're feeling good between us, now that we've got some new skills, can we maybe try to look at this pebble that's in my shoe? Yeah, I love that. So I wonder if it's also a readiness. Yeah. I chipped away at this thing and I feel pretty good here. Now, I'm a little more resourced. Woo, I got one thing behind me. I'm ready to look at the next thing. And it sort of emerges. It's not like I have to pick it off a book off the shelf. It just sort of emerges usually is my experience. So I think what we're offering is a really interesting reframe of it, right? Because rather than like, oh my God, there's so much old shit for the two of us to dig through. We're never going to be done. I think the reframe is look how cool this is. The two of you are creating enough safety right now that you can look back at the past with more compassionate eyes. Like you could, you had to bury that stuff in order to stay in this relationship. But now the prize of getting safer in the present moment is that you, like the reward for that work is that you can look back and like run some old stuff through this newer framework. Yes, I totally agree. And I'm just thinking of this client I was working with recently who um, got kind of just like we're talking about, got to a better place and then was able to finally be available for that repair around something that was pretty negative about 10 years ago that had to do with their wedding and their in-laws that never got dealt with. And he finally was like, okay, I'm ready to, to show up for you now. Uh, you complained and you, you know, blamed me for years about this thing, but I actually am ready to now validate your experience and I'm ready to listen in a whole different way. And then they had this huge cathartic kind of moment because the man was like, I want to do over because I didn't consider your feelings 10 years ago. And it makes so much sense. You got so hurt and angry with me. I mean, that was just like life changing. Oh, for them. damn. Oh my gosh. That's huge. I can only imagine how, how witnessed his partner felt. Yeah. And all of us kind of want that, even with that owie that happened a long time ago, just to have someone acknowledge it. Like I said to my parents a while back and a few years ago after I went through a stage, I can't remember if you know this about me, but I went through a stage where I cut off my mom and I wasn't talking to my parents. And it was kind of my attempt at differentiation in Mm -hmm. my (laughs) thirties. 
<laughs> you held on to one of the poles, right? Yeah. <laughs> autonomy and connection. You went a little hard on the autonomy. Uh-huh. I did. It was very messy. Anyway, it was cool years later to come back and repair that with them and say, you know, I, I really fucked up there, guys. And uh, uh, I treated you like shit. Oh. I was an asshole. I can only imagine how that must have felt for someone who's given so much to me for so many years. You guys showed up for me so hard in my life and for me to just like turn my back on you, you know, and like to own that, all of that, like they just, you know, they were in tears and they're like, yeah, thanks. It was cool. Mm. A lot of healing. It's tremendous healing. And it's, it speaks to the power of relationship that they can have these chat. Like when you're in a chapter, I'm sure when, when you were in the chapter of cutoff, I'm sure it felt like this is absolute capital T truth. This is what has to happen and it has to be forever. And whatever 40 year old Jason, you know, could have whispered in the ear of that younger Jason, like, oh my God, you have no idea what's (laughs) going to be coming down the pike, you know, but in the moment it feels like this is all there can possibly be. And there's, it's so powerful when you get to like witness or experience those chapters of relationship where you're like, I didn't even know this chapter was possible. I call this relational leadership. Like when we can be a leader in our family or our relationships and our inner circle, you know, we're the person that has the capacity to take responsibility. We have the capacity and ability to empathize with others. We can validate feelings. Just those three things alone move mountains in families and in relationships. And um, thank you again for doing what you're doing because you're helping build those relationship leaders that we need out in the world who can, in a way, be the bigger person to help things get back to a good place and move the family forward or move the business forward or move the marriage forward. Yeah. These are so often the conversations I have, like, for example, in my office hours with my college students, right, where we're talking about parent emerging adult tensions. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. thinking one of my students who's parents just will not accept her boyfriend. They don't think that she's chosen, you know, the right guy. And right now everything feels so stuck and both sides are so dug in. And that was what she and I were working on. It's like the degree to which she can manage her reactivity, right? Will change this mm-hmm. dance because when they are rejecting, she argues back, she takes the bait. You know, they say some sweeping negative statement about him and she gets hooked in and she takes the bait and she argues back. And we really worked on What's different if she can remember that her parents, a limited scope of view, they are, like all of us, can only be understood within their context. And they have very firm beliefs about who their daughter should be Mm. with, what country he should be from, what level of education he should have. And they are limited by that. And the degree to which she can, like, hold on to that empathically, like not excusing it but holding onto it empathically and then resisting the urge to argue it and instead like kind of like working with it rather than against it. Like, I know that this is not who you envisioned for me. I know that based on grandma and grandpa, it makes mm-hmm. sense to me that with the way that grandma and grandpa raised each of you, it makes sense that you have these strong ideas and beliefs. Like that's yeah. the relational leadership, right? It's like leading with empathy to change the conversation. Yeah. And my choice to date this person doesn't necessarily mean it's a negative reflection of how you all raised me. Right. Uh When I fell in love with a Jewish man, that was huge for my mom was, was that she, she said, you know, she raised me Christian. And that was what she said. She's like, your choice, you know, you becoming Jewish, you marrying a Jewish man is not a rejection of me. It's a reflection of how important 
faith must mm. be in your life. You know, like wow. she found a way of kind of like saying, this isn't a rejection of me. It's an extension of some lesson that I had given you about the importance of faith and a family, you know, being able to have faith community in common. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the person who's got the chops or the skills can work with that person with the, the narrower frame, right? Or the, their narrower yes. view. Whereas you can't kind of do it the other way around. So when we expect someone with a limited view to do what we want done for us, it's going to lead to frustration. Listen, it is, it's tiring being the one with the broader view in a lot, right? That's the hard thing, but the more you learn. Yeah. I mean, changing people is such a human thing, right? I don't know. <laughs> it's just like, we just want to change people mm-hmm. so that we feel better. <laughs> we want to change the outside. Right. It's understandable, but man, in relationships, that one gets very crunchy very quick. That's right. It'll wear you, wear you down. I think we should move on to our listener question. Our listener question comes from somebody in Toronto, Canada. She doesn't want us to use her name, but she uses she, her pronouns. And she wrote this. What do we do when our partner is not willing to have certain tough conversations or address certain incidents from the past, which I may feel is important for me to have closure? While I can see the effort my partner is making to change and our relationship is at a much better place, and I can understand that the hesitation to have this conversation is because he does not want to revisit not so great memories and also a fear of unsettling what we have currently. What if I find the need to get those things out there to complete my own healing? What does one do in such a situation? What stands out to you? There's almost a contradiction in the, in the question, which is like, he's not willing, but we're in a better place and he's making efforts. And so anyone who's making efforts to me sounds willing. Hmm. I want to challenge the notion that he's unwilling. If things have improved and you've made progress in some areas, that tells me you're with a willing-ish partner, at least. However, let's say he's completely shutting the door on some of those past hurts because of the reasons you mentioned, I don't want to go there. It's going to make things worse. Like we don't need to do that. We're kind of beyond that, etc. Let's just assume that that's the case that he completely shut the door and says, I'm putting a lock on it. And absolutely not. That is a very firm boundary that I would personally want to respect. You can't chisel that door down. You can't, I don't think it's cool to yeah. continue to bang down someone's door when they're saying no, hmm. you know, it's like, that's a boundary. So I would check out that if that's true. Are you 100% absolute not? I will not. I would just check that out first. Uh Let's just say he says, well, I'm a hell no, actually. It's like back to you then. It's like, okay, what are you going to do with those hurts? And there's, I see two main options. One is to work through your side of it. One of my favorite cognitive exercises is to stack up the benefits of that hurt to you and your values. And the drawbacks had it never happened. So let's say it was an affair. Yeah. Um, how did that affair help me become a stronger woman? Love it. Yeah. How did that help me get smarter with my choices? How did that help me yeah. um, learn more about myself? And what did I learn about myself and the things that I care about? Yeah. Maybe you're a mother or maybe you are a boss or something. How did that help me become a better leader? Sure. And what would the drawbacks be if that affair never happened? Ah. Uh... Uh-huh. So I get out of a fantasy that I wish the past were different yep. and I get into reality that the past is the past. It happened. How can I just change my perception about it yep. so that I become stronger? That way I can't lose. I'm only getting empowered here. 
from whatever hurt happened. So that's a solo thing you could try. Um, and then, then another thing is the other option. That's one option. The other option I fork in the road is leave. Like, right. you know, eventually extract yourself from that relationship because you're like clear that you don't want to be in a relationship where someone is not, they shut the door on you. I know there's lots of variables of leaving relationships. I know it's very complicated and especially if there's financial dependence and yada, yada, yada. And I'm saying, you know, it's sort of like, how can you frame this whole thing of how do I get empowered here? That's right. With or without this person. Yeah. I love where you started us, which is that meta conversation. I was also thinking about sort of like meta conversation, like talking about talking about it. And what I was thinking about is her asking questions like, what is it you don't want to feel if we talk about it? How do you worry I will respond if we talk about it? It's trying to really understand from his perspective what feels so dreadful about the conversation. But I love what you did in terms of a meta conversation, which is asking her to suss out how strong a no is this? Like just getting really clear. Is it a no never? Is it a not right now, but come ask me again in six months? Is it a not unless we are on the beach with a fruity drink in our hand? Like, is it like sort of what, is it a context dependent? No, is it a hard? No, is it a not for now? No. And then I love where you are challenging her to go. If he's a hard firm, hundred percent. No, it was making me think about one of the pieces I wanted to bring up, which is this idea of closure. There's a relational element of closure for sure. But I also think people disempower themselves when they act like the only way I can get closure is if you give it to me. So I love the idea of her doing some internal work. Her internal work might also be not just the benefits of the bad thing that happened, but also the forgiveness work within herself. Like, what has she lost? What does she need to forgive about how she behaved during that bad, painful thing, right? Is there an element of, like, she craves this thing from him that actually potentially has more to do with a way that she feels like she betrayed herself, abandoned herself, disappointed herself? And so is there a way that there's, like, a gift in his unwillingness to talk with her Because what it forces her to do then is dive into like, okay, what is it about my relationship with me that I need to look at, examine, forgive? Yeah. And I want to underscore a couple of things you said, the conversation about the conversation. I just love that language. That's exactly like the meta. Let's step out because people often dive into the hard conversation instead of saying, wait, do we even want to have this conversation? And are you available for it? So that was great. And then everything you said, yes. Because again, People look outside themselves for the closure and the person might have cut us off. You know, often it's a family member that has no interest in having a conversation with us. Why would we be holding our empowerment to them, you know, with some weird open loop that could never come? I don't think that feels good. And so I I just appreciate what you said there. It's very tempting because sometimes it keeps us in this fantasy of like, sometimes we just, we would choose just about any feeling besides helplessness or acceptance or letting go. Yeah. I really, I feel her on this. Like it is difficult to feel like there's an elephant in the room or there's something that I don't understand. I think maybe if she had a deeper understanding about why they can't talk about it, why he's not available to talk about it, that way it might help her develop some compassion and acceptance. But I suspect it's hard for her to feel like there's this thing I can see it. I think you can see it, but we aren't talking about it. And that experience with her partner right now 
may be supercharged by a feeling from the past, right? If she grew up in a family where there was a parent struggling with addiction, for example, that would be the same knot of feelings of like, I see this, I think you see this, but we aren't talking about it. Like Mm -hmm. that can feel very painful, chronically invalidating and very confusing. So she may want to look at like, is this feeling of like, why aren't we talking about something that seems obvious that may have an origin story in her family? Yeah, that's so good. Let's just say everything you were saying is true that she there's it's supercharged from something in the past. Then there's this huge opportunity for her Mm. to potentially complete something, some healing from the past around growing up in that chaotic environment or the family environment where, yeah, things wouldn't get talked about. It's like, what is then the healing move for her? to go, okay, that was my history. That was the family I grew up in. Because I imagine there's more healing to do for her if there was supercharged, like you're saying, the historical piece. Yeah. And that work with family of origin, maybe it would take some pressure off this relationship because of what you, the first thing you highlighted was, listen, the two of you are making progress. You're seeing some really good gains. Yes, you guys aren't exactly where you want to be, but this relationship has grown over time. So it may be that her work will take a bit of the pressure off of the two of them as a couple. Mm -hmm. Totally. And then one, one other thing I just thought of was she might decide, is there a non-negotiable here? Like I was just talking about him. Can she move on not talking about this? Mm. Mm -hmm. Right. Or is it not negotiable? It's like, no, actually we need to, this is something that's really important to me. I'm an absolute yes if you're a no, then this isn't going to work. You know, like then there, then it's kind of clear if he's an absolute no and she's a, I won't accept a no for an answer type of thing. And it's like, you can't, well, you can't change him. So your only option really is to to move out of that relationship. And I don't hear you saying that as any kind of a threat or ultimatum, but there can be something really empowering about somebody realizing that they can leave. You do have an option here. You are not beholden to waiting around for him to decide whether and when and how he's going to talk about it. I think that just that awareness of like, right, this is a relationship I'm choosing to be in or choosing that this is that it's too much self-sacrifice. Totally. Yeah, because again, that's what people do, right? Is they self-sacrifice to get connection. Mm-hmm. I got to kind of compartmentalize who I am or contort who I am to be in a relationship with you. And it's like, I'm in the business of helping people be who they are, really are, all warts and all, like uh, messiness and all, and get the relationship they want. And this is why conflict repair is so essential, because if I bring out my true colors, you're, there's going to be some things that upset you and you don't like about how I am, how I behave, et cetera. And so we're going to need to work through some of that messiness together to stay in a relationship and, and that's mutually beneficial. Mm-hmm. So I, I just want to, I'm an advocate for relationships where we, it's all okay to bring it out on the table and two people are like, yeah, we can talk about anything here because we don't want to live in fear and we want to support each other's hurts. We want to support each other's pain and through what's difficult in life. And that requires a lot of transparency and openness about anything, yeah. um, including something that happened 20 years ago. So I want that for the listener is this safe haven where you get to talk about kind of anything you want and you're still going to be received, even though the other person might get triggered. That's right. And even though the other person might have to take some deep breaths and remember that showing up for this conversation is because I love you, because I love us, because this is me walking the talk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Oh, Jason, I could just talk to you for about six more hours. I'm going to have to wrap us up. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Of course. Thanks for you and your congrats on your podcast. It seems like it's doing amazing. And I'm so glad and grateful you started a podcast. When I first met you so long ago, it was like you were doing this amazing class with these undergraduates and at Northwestern. And I was so inspired. And I was like, man, there should be a thousand people and 10,000 and a hundred thousand people taking that class. So your podcast is just one way to get more people in that class kind of vicariously and in all these amazing guests you have and your wisdom. So I'm just psyched for you. Thank you. You're just one of my favorite people in this space. Truly, truly, truly. And you, like I said at the beginning, you're somebody whose wisdom I trust. And when I'm about to do something that scares the shit out of me, like starting a podcast, like you're the one I want to talk to because I just admire that your courage in this work and your leadership mm. in this work. And I love your podcast. As you know, I love your book. I love all the things that you are up to. So if this is somebody's first exposure to you, where do you want them to go? Like what's next? Like what's a great way for people to keep up with you and dive more deeply into your realm? Yeah, probably relationshipschool.com is, you know, if they had to pick one link, that's kind of where everything is. You can find out more about the book or the podcast or listen to past episodes with Alexander on there. Courses, sign up for courses, our coaching training program, you know, a lot of options there. Mm -hmm. I'm active on Instagram at Jason Gaddis, J-A-Y-S-O-N Gaddis. Those are probably the two places. All that's going to be in the show notes. Thank you, my friend. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Jason, for bringing your wisdom, your vulnerability, and your compassion to the show today. You can find ways to reach Jason in the show notes from his wonderful book, Getting to Zero, to his podcast and his other educational tools. Until next time, be well. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.